How's it going, Renewal? Good to see you guys. Um, Can I pray? God, I just thank you for who you are, and I thank you for those truths that we just said out loud together, declaring who you are, declaring our confidence in who you are. Um, God, that's, that's what makes us your children, is the revelation of who you are and what you have accomplished and what you've done and our confidence in that. It's what makes us your children. And uh, we're so thankful for that. It wasn't any work of our own. It wasn't anything we did. It wasn't any good work that we were able to pile up and measure up and demonstrate to you of how worthy we were. It was seeing you for who you are and resting in that. God, I pray that this morning as we move into your word, God, uh, would you show us more of who you are? Would you show us the things that you're about? Uh, And would you um, cultivate our heart to be about the things you're about? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good to see you guys. If, uh, if you hear me sniffing a little bit, it's not because I have a cold. It's uh, sitting next to the door over here. It's a little cold, okay? Uh, just a little bit chilly on this side. I argued to move the stand to this side of the room, maybe because to uh, balance out the stage, and I might be regretting it. It's just a tad cold on this side. Um, Grace, I apologize. I, was, I have a lot more sympathy for you and the keyboard players uh, over here. Um, I don't have a cold. I'm just cold. Um, you know, we've been in this season of prayer and fasting, and it's really uh, been a beautiful season. Um, morning prayer has been so life-giving. If you haven't jumped in on morning prayer yet, I would really encourage you uh, to do that. It's really been good. And one of the things that Pastor Ulysses and I have been talking about kind of through this season is, you know, it, it's great at the beginning of the year, you know, to say, all right, we're going to pray 21 days of pray, uh, prayer and fasting. But then the kind of idea is, um, how does this persist? How do we continue as a church and as people who are committed to prayer, both corporately when we come together, but also individually in our own walk with Jesus? How does it persist? I think oftentimes we can see prayer as an event, as the thing we we do. And and lots of times we, we work really hard to make the event of prayer good because we think if we can make that event good, and I'm not against good events, but somehow we think, okay, if we can do that, then, then we'll be energized around prayer. And I've grown up in the Christian church my whole life, and I've seen uh, just intervals of kind of reworking how we do prayer meetings and prayer services and prayer and worship. And all these things are incredibly important, but they, they don't seem to have, the, they're not the catalytic effect that we want sometimes to persist in prayer. Prayer meetings and prayer seasons are good. But is it the kind of thing that marks the kind of movement we want in our heart? When I, um, years and years ago, I was with some friends, um, and this is kind of a visual picture, maybe what I'm talking about. But years ago, I was with some friends, and we were zealous for the Lord. And we are, uh, all of them are still following the Lord. They're great friends. And we wanted to have a prayer service, so we thought we're going to make this real significant. We're going to make this real powerful. So we we got a really dimly lit room, and... uh, and we got a bunch of candles. 
And uh, we, we just put candles all over this dimly lit room. And uh, they were just everywhere, you know. And we, had, we weren't doing incense. That would have been a little weird to us, you know. But we were trying to get some sensory things going, you know. And, and we had some art things to draw on. And we were all kind of in the room. And we had some good music. And we came in. And, and there wasn't any chairs because we were spiritual. You know, we were going to get on our face before the Lord, you know. And I know me and David are speaking the same language over here. And uh, so we got in there. And we're all on the floor and candles. And, and uh, we're just worshiping. And... And we started singing this old song you probably haven't heard in a long time because most of you are young. It was, light the fire in my soul, fan the flame. Okay, most of you guys don't know it. Um, and I was just feeling the Lord, so I just like stood up. I said, man, I'm going to worship God. And I stood up and I leaned back against, um, there was an old pew that was kind of where we were standing in front of. And I felt this warmth start to just crawl up my back. I thought, oh, the Lord is in this place. Oh, I can sense the spirit of God here. And I was just like, wow, this is a genuine Holy Spirit acts moment until I heard someone go, Chuck! And then someone started slapping my back. And I turned around, I was wearing a hoodie and a huge piece of my hoodie fell onto the floor. I had leaned back against one of the candles and caught on fire. And, uh, you know, I, I, at first I thought, this is a great, you know, this is awesome. That's what's happening to me spiritually. I'm caught on fire and I'm just going to pray like this for the rest of my life. But it turned out to be more of a good story than something that was catalytic to my prayer life. It was an event. It was a moment. It was a great moment. It became a funny moment. And then the fire was knocked out of my hoodie. It was stomped on the ground. And it didn't result much in a prayer of movement in my heart. And, and so I guess the question I want to ask this morning is, how do we pray or what kind of prayer marks a movement? What kind of prayer stirs in us a persistent passion to consistently pray, both as a lifestyle and corporately. When we come to those events, I hope we have events where we sit on the floor and candles are lit up and we worship God and we call out to God, but it's not going to be catalytic enough for us. And what you see, I think, in the Bible is there are groups of people, you'll see it in the book of Acts, and what we're going to look at today, the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see prayer and you're going to see it rooted in the middle of a movement. So we've been talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. They're linked together. They partner together. Um, Ezra is a prophet. Ezra has been called by God. That as the people of God are moving back to the holy city of Jerusalem, Ezra is restoring biblical worship. He's opening up the law. He's opening up the Old Testament, and he's calling people back to it. And, and if you've been part of morning prayer, if you've been doing the daily reading with us, you see times where the whole nation of God is around the word of God, and it's being restored, and they're weeping before God. God going, wow, God, this is your word. This is what you say. That's amazing. And what you notice if you read the book of Ezra is this continual theme of Ezra praying and then the people praying around this movement of restoring the people of God to biblical worship. And, and Nehemiah is going to start his own movement. 
We're gonna see that he's going to get a vision and a passion for build, rebuilding the actual city and the walls of the city because he has heard that the walls are broken down and the enemies of the people of God are able to move into the city. And so Nehemiah is going to say, okay, I've got a vision for rebuilding the city and he's gonna have to get a momentum to that. He's gonna have to get a team together. He's gonna have to get resources together. And it's gonna be a long journey of fighting battles and all the things that go into Rebuilding the city, it was a complete movement. The, the people of God are moving back out of Babylon and into the city, um, and lots of things are happening. It's a movement. And what you'll see both at Ezra and in Nehemiah is there's this way that they pray that marks their movement. There's, a, there, there's some themes about how they pray and some things that are happening to their heart that result in persistent prayer as they move forward. And so that's what we wanna look at. What are some of these things that will be a catalyst for persistent prayer that marks a movement? So I wanna show you this. We're gonna look at Nehemiah chapter one, and we're gonna enter into the story where Nehemiah gets a vision for what God's called him to do, and he begins to pray. And the way he prays, you'll see it kind of linked up again uh, later on in the book. So it's kind of, it's kind of the framework for what's shaped his heart and will shape the way he prays so that the movement has the kind of fuel that it needs. Nehemiah 1 verses 1 says this, is the words of Nehemiah, the son of Halakha, I never say those words right. And it happened in the month of Shiv in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that's a fortress, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So one of his brothers, he's at, Nehemiah's at a fortress city in Babylon. And, and uh, one of his brothers, who has been able to go back to the homeland, is now returning, and he's got some news. And uh, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem, the, the holy city of God. And they said to me, the remnant, those that are left there in the province, the, the, those that have not been taken out of the land, the ones who have survived the exile, they're in great trouble and shame. Great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. There's great trouble in the place that holds a deep concern to Nehemiah. The walls of the city are broken down and the people of God are not honored among the nations, but they're in great shame and in great trouble. And in verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Did you hear that? When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Before we move on, I wanna pause right here because what I think we're gonna see come out of the life of Nehemiah is birthed from a place of grief. 
See, I think sometimes in our culture, we're afraid of things like sorrow and grief. It makes us really uncomfortable. But I think if you're gonna read how movements start, you're gonna find that almost always movements are sparked out of brokenness. They're sparked out of a place of deep awareness of pain, the pain that's around us and the pain that's in our own heart. And Nehemiah looks at this, the wall's broken down, the shame of his people, and he is broken, he is weeping, and he doesn't pray for five minutes or an hour or an afternoon, but he weeps and he mourns for days. A famous pastor in New York, David Wilkerson, uh, quoted this passage one time. Uh, David Wilkerson was well-known for a church he pastored in New York, but also for a ministry that reached out to um, teens that were juveniles. And he said that he has, in his life, never seen a ministry that stood the test of time that wasn't birthed out of anguish, that wasn't birthed out of a deep sense of things are not how they should be. That this isn't right. It's broken. And, and, and I look at that and I think, okay, so, so there's this brokenness that's, that's fueling Nehemiah and it's gonna fuel the rest of the way he prays. And it's, you're gonna see in the book, if you read the whole book, which you won't today, but you can read it. It's an amazing story of how he moves into action and, and he steps into the problem and, and he, he does a whole thing to deal with the shame and the trouble that he sees. But it all starts from this deep place of grief. And so when I, when I look at that and I think, okay, God, like, wh- why is my prayer life not where it should be? Why is it not persistent? Why is it not going forward? Why, why is it that I can go weeks at a time without being on my face? Why is it that I can pray sometimes there are 21 days of prayer and then I'm gonna move on and it's not gonna be a big part of my life? And, and I look at myself and I say, well, maybe, I, I don't know if I, I have this kind of anguish. Maybe I'm just not aware enough or sensitive enough to the kinds of things that ought to be wrecking my heart. Or maybe I'm not leaned into the heart of God and the things that wreck God's heart. Maybe God's heart is in anguish right now and I'm just not tuned in. I actually think that might be the case and I was just thinking, well, what would be some barriers uh, to that, me and Catherine were talking about this, and I think one of the things that we're battling through is comfort, complacency, complacency. We're newly married. We're having a great time being married. We've got a comfortable little apartment. Um, we're having a good time. We're making good friends. It's easy to be comfortable. I mean, some of the best food I've ever had in my entire life here in the Bay Area. There's so much good food. Last night I had, we had Vaughn's chicken. Oh, it was so good. I dream about it in the middle of the night. This morning I almost ate it for breakfast because we had leftovers. I'm comfortable. I'm happy. I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but sometimes they, they can be a barrier. Like there's some brokenness around us and I'm a little bit numb to it. See, see when I was single, I, I was very leaned into the, the brokenness of loneliness. I could smell it. 
It was, it was, it was really relevant to my own heart, but I could, I could sniff it up in other people. I could sniff it out in married people. I could sniff it out in single people, and I was broken about it. I prayed about it. I invited people to open up and talk about it. Is it any less of a brokenness in our culture now? Not if you look at studies, but I'm comfortable, and I'm complacent. You know, maybe, and this is maybe something that Nehemiah could have maybe felt this, but maybe there's just some distance. You know, I've got emotional distance up there, but, but maybe emotional and physical distance from the things that are maybe broken around us. Maybe I just don't sense it. I don't, I don't uh, it feels far away, you know? Um, people suffering, people struggling in poverty. You know, maybe these, these things feel too far away from me. And and maybe I have some emotional or even physical distance. I mean, I think Nehemiah could have, could have felt that way, man. He's, he's not doing bad. We're gonna find out later that he serves the king. He's in an honored position as he serves the king. Nehemiah, I think, easily could have heard that report and been like, man, that's super far away. Oh, that feel bad. Oh, okay, all right, what's next? I mean, aren't we that callous sometimes? Oh, we saw the news, ah. Oh. So bad, what's going on in those worn, torn countries? Ugh. What are we doing for dinner tonight? Where are we going? Who are we hanging out with? I think we, we, we can sometimes have this emotional and physical distance that, that is a barrier to us feeling the brokenness that we ought to feel. And sometimes I think it's self-preservation. But what I mean by that is maybe we have some things going on in ourselves that are, that are, that are hurtful or, or some pains or emotional things that we're battling with. And, and our way of kind of self-preserving is to kind of wall ourselves in and, hey, man, I'm, you know, there's a big bad world out there, but that, we're not going to think about all of that. We're going we're gonna to stay here and we're going to self-preserve. Got to take care of me. It's very popular in our culture, by the way. Take care of you. Think about you. Make sure you're doing good. You keep your stuff together. Don't. Yeah, well, don't worry about all this mess out here. And a lot of that has to do with the way our secular culture sees the mess out here as very, a very hopeless mentality. It can't do a lot about it. So, hey, just let's keep the chaos out here and, and let's preserve ourselves. Let's make sure we are, we're all good. Or sometimes we just feel entitled. You know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good and I think it's because I've done pretty good. I've done some good stuff. I've worked pretty hard. You know, those people over there, they'd have... You know, they'd have done better if they'd have worked harder in school the way I worked harder in school. And, and if they'd have, you know, they'd have figured their problems out the way I figured my problems out. And we're just kind of entitled sometimes. And these things are barriers to the kind of broken heart that I think comes from our God when he looks at the broken world we're in. The, the, the world that we're in that's been infected by sin, that has wrecked everything around us. The whole plan of God in creating a people and the church has been that we would bring the kingdom to earth by pursuing the heart of God as he leans into the brokenness of this world around us. And so if those are the barriers, then, then how, do we, how do we cultivate a broken heart? I think there are two kind of simple things that I wanna lean into. One is I think we, we start looking around it's time to get our eyes off of ourselves and look around. Isaiah, when the brother came back, Isaiah could have gone the path of being like, hey, brother, good to see you. High five. Are you hungry? You had a long journey. But, but Isaiah wanted to hear. 
do, do we want to hear? So I, I think we, we need to start looking around with an ear toward what God might be saying about the things that are around us. And then I think we might need to move closer. We might need, we might need to take steps closer to the things that we see that are broken so we can hear why they're broken, so that we can feel the pain that's there. It's very hard to have empathy when we're distant, when we're far away. In fact, you'll see later in the story in Nehemiah chapter two, Nehemiah actually, it doesn't take very long for Nehemiah to make a move to get down to the holy city. And when he gets down to the holy city, the first thing that he does is secretly without telling anybody, he begins to take a ride around the city and he wants to inspect every part of the wall. He wants to see where all the things are broken. He goes to every single gate and every part of it and he sees where it is. He sees where it's been broken down. He sees where the enemy has come through. He just, he gets closer and he gets a, he gets a better view. Are there some things we need a, a better view of? I, I just had some stuff that as I was thinking and praying about this that came to mind, things that we've become, you know, kind of anecdotally aware of as me and Catherine have moved to the area, but there's good research to back it up. But, you know, we came from the Bible Belt and so we maybe didn't feel this, but when we got here, we feel it all the time that, that this Bay Area, this culture, many, many, many people here do not know Jesus. Do you feel that on a daily basis? I feel it a lot. I feel it at the gym. I feel it when I go out to the store. I feel it when I drive down roads and in neighborhoods and I don't see what I came from, which is churches everywhere. And then you do a little research and you go, okay, what's going on here? Well, you can look, this, uh, this area, uh, the Bay Area, this is by the way from the San Francisco Chronicle. This is not from a Christian perspective. Uh, the Bay Area is full of, of Buddhists. The San Francisco Chronicle called it the, the Buddhist Mecca. That, that out of all the counties in America, we have three of the top Buddhist counties in the country. They're, out, they're here in the Bay. We, we, we've experienced that because we have friends that we've met in the Bay outside of the church um, that are exploring Buddhism. Going to monasteries and, and, and spending weekends there and then wanting to talk about it later and Right, so, so they're here, they're, there's Buddhists all over us. What does that mean? Well, if you know Jesus, you look at that and you go, hey, they don't know Jesus. There's a ton of people around us that, that don't know Jesus, not only don't know Jesus, but are following a false hope, a hope that will lead to destruction. You know that's what we believe, right? That if you put your hope in any kind of spirituality that is not Jesus, it is destruction. People you work with who are good people, are putting their hope in something that will lead to destruction. That ought to rip us apart. That ought to keep us up at night. These people, these kind, beautiful people made in the image of God that we see and they're so beautiful and they're so kind and they're so sweet and they're so gracious. They're headed to destruction. When's the last time you prayed with that kind of angst? The Chronicle tells us that the Hindus are here. Again, uh, that out of the, in the whole nation, we have three out of the top 10 counties with Hindu populations. We went to a Hindu wedding the month when we moved here. It was beautiful, it was amazing. This was some of the sweetest people I've ever met. Headed to destruction. Don't know Jesus will spend eternity separated from God 
if they don't find Christ. It's a big deal. This is forever. People not experiencing what they were made for, which is a relationship with Almighty God and not knowing the grace of God that moves in the direction that says you don't have to earn righteousness of your own. It's a gift. You can never earn it on your own. They don't know that. And caught in the cycle of trying to measure up, destruction is their end if they don't know Jesus. It's the last time we prayed like that. I see, I think the heart of God is ripped apart as he looks at the broken world going, there's a cross for you. There's righteousness for you. There's a hope for you. If we're too comfortable and complacent to, to pray with that kind of anguish, we, we may need God to do some work in our heart. Points out that Santa, Santa Clara County is the fifth most religiously diverse county in the US. It's a very spiritual county. People believe all kinds of things and there are all kinds of religions reflected here. Many of them don't know Jesus. Barna tells us that the Bay Area is the number one unchurched. That means the most in our whole country, it's the number one unchurched region in America. Fewer people go to church here in the Bay Area than anywhere else you could go in the US. It's people you work with at every job you're at, every restaurant you're sitting at, every server who serves you, everyone you know, and every place you go, this is their reality. And the church of God, full of the Holy Spirit, should be wide awake and broken so broken that people who are hurting in every possible way and looking, listen, religiously diverse, why? Because people are looking for something to make them whole, but they're not whole. And we know why, because sin has entered into our heart and broke everything. Do we pray? Do we have that kind of catalytic angst in our heart? Barna also says that this is the most de-churched area in America, which means that lots of people used to go to church in the Bay Area and now don't for a variety of reasons. Maybe they saw hypocrisy. Maybe they experienced legalism. Um, whatever the reason are, most unchurched and most de-churched, you know many people headed to destruction who need the gospel and need to know the love of Jesus. We could stop the sermon right here and just have a prayer meeting and just get on our face because we could all count. Last night I was running through my head as I was laying in bed of the people just in the last seven months that I've met and known and fallen in love with who do not know Jesus. And I could count, bum, 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 bum. I could meet with them for coffee every week for the next seven months and not get to them all. And it's my heart broken for them. This is, I'm, I'm kind of preaching to Chuck Eastman right now. Am I so broken with the anguish that grips God's heart for those who don't know Christ that I, I, I pray differently 
I don't need, I don't need a service to stir me up. I'm internally driven by the things that drives God's heart when he looks at the world around us. You know, we could move uh, from that, we could go to the world. Um, and I'm kind of beating this horse really hard. But I think we need to get a good view of this because it, it would, I think it would change the way we pray. Three billion people on planet Earth are in unreached areas. That means no access to the gospel, no missionary. In many cases, no Bible translation in their language. Three billion people who do not know what it means to stand in the righteousness of Christ, free from self-effort, to know his mercy and his grace. Three billion people. And maybe that's too far off for you. Let's just dial in a little bit closer. Just in our area, the CDC says, your children, if you have children, if you have junior hires or high schoolers or even younger than that, right, struggling with mental illness over the last year, a spike, struggling with suicidal thoughts, not able to sleep well, going to the ER randomly because of scares in their mental health. Are we, are we wrecked inside? This is close to home. Is our heart broken? And is it, do we begin to begin to go, okay, God, we're, we're, we, see, we see this. We, we see what's going on. Are we like Nehemiah who sees the walls of the city? And we begin to weep and mourn in such a way that we cannot be the same. We cannot act the same. We can't think the same. Doesn't mean we don't eat food and celebrate with our friends. And, but, we, but we are just now in awareness that has changed everything that we do. We've reordered our priorities. And we pray because we know that we can't make any kind of impact on our own. Now, all of that could leave us pretty hopeless if we don't go to the second way that Nehemiah prays. He starts with anguish. He weeps and he mourns. But then I love when he begins to speak. Look at verse five. He says, I said... O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What happened? I think what we're seeing is that persistent prayer that flows out of this broken anguish is a prayer that has a great confidence in God. If you don't have a great confidence in God, then everything I just said is just gonna make you sad and hopeless. And there's a lot of that going on. Just you can watch the news and you can spiral into hopelessness if you want. Nehemiah doesn't spiral into hopelessness. Oh, he is broken. There is anguish. He is weeping and he is mourning, but he has a confidence and it's not a little confidence. It's a big outsized confidence. And what's his confidence in? A great and awesome God. So he sees a city ripped apart, millions of people who have been displaced, the people of God not worshiping God anymore. 
the enemies of the people of God moving in, and he's, he weeps and he mourns over that, but his confidence is that I have a great and awesome God. He's big. Do we have that kind of confidence when we pray? When, when we hear some of the things coming out of our culture, do we get on our face and go, we have a great and awesome God. You can move in this place right now. You can move in this situation right now. We know these people. We know this friend of ours who's so broken, who's so hurt, who's so angry at you. I can think of someone right now in my mind. They're so angry at God, but God, you are great and awesome God. You could move in this moment, God. Could you please? Nehemiah has an outsized confidence in God. He's a great and awesome God. He can do anything. He is over everything. He is over every situation. Nothing is beyond his ability. He is sovereign. See, God's heart can be both broken over what he sees in the world, and he can still be sovereign over all of it. And the people of God are people who sense the brokenness and put their confidence in his greatness. If you don't have that, you're just gonna get hopeless. And you can join the rest of the universe who looks at everything around us and goes, yeah, it's all a crapshoot. We have a great and awesome God and Nehemiah prays to him. And then his prayer is, this confidence is wrapped up in God's awesomeness, but it's wrapped up in his covenant. He's a covenant keeping God. He doesn't break his promises. He is faithful to his people. He's gonna come through. This is really important. If you don't believe God is good, if you don't believe he is faithful, if you don't believe he will come through and he has a purpose for you and he has not abandoned you, you will stop praying. Consistent, persistent prayer has to be rooted in your confidence of God's goodness. He has a plan and he hasn't taken his foot off the pedal and he isn't gonna back off and he is going to come through. Nehemiah is broken, but he is confident. God will come through. He's great. He's awesome. He is a covenant-keeping, never-failing God, and he has an unfailing, some translations say, or a steadfast, never-ending love. I, I really think these two things, when they're paired together, could potentially be a game-changer for you and me in terms of the way our prayer life works. If we, by the Spirit of God, allow ourselves to be aware of the things that are broken and lean into God's heart when we hear, when we read his word and we see that in his word that he doesn't want the orphan ignored, he doesn't want the oppressed worker, in James it says, to be oppressed, he wants the prisoners visited, he wants the widows cared for. When we lean into the heart of God, when he talks about his compassion for the crowds and he loves the crowds and they're sheep without a shepherd, we hear the heart of God toward them and our heart breaks for those things and we have an un failing confidence in his greatness, I think we'll pray. And we'll pray consistently because we expect that God is gonna move. And I think secondly, what Nehemiah knows is God's gonna move 
through him. When you are broken and your confidence God is high, you begin to believe God's gonna move me in that direction. God's gonna get me in front of that person and have a cup of coffee with that person. And you're like, well, I don't know if it's me and I don't know if I have the words and maybe I don't know, I'm intimidated a little bit because they're super smart and you know, but God's gonna maybe use you because your heart's broken and you believe God's powerful and he works. So you start stepping into some things. This is the kind of prayer I think that marks a movement. He's got a confidence in awesome God, a commitment to covenant and steadfast love. And then I want, you to, I want you to see something really beautiful here. I think the more we step into the things God's called us to do and the more we pray and the more we're in God's presence around those things, these things will become aware to us. But he's broken about the things around him. But I want you to notice that this confidence in God that he has allows him to do something really important. It allows him to own his own sin. This is sneaky. But when you know for a fact that God is a covenant-keeping God with you, and you know for a fact that his love is steadfast, you can come like a child and you can Say, here's my sin, God. Why? Because a covenant-keeping God's not gonna see our sin and go, Chuck, get out of here. Oh, you know what? I was gonna use you. You know, there was this friend that you were gonna share the gospel with, and I was gonna use you to do that, but I just saw some doubt in your heart. I just saw some sin in your heart, and you know what? I guess you're not the one. If you don't have a confidence in a covenant-keeping God, you'll let your sin disqualify you just like that. I, I can't be me, you know? I struggled with sin yesterday. Can't be me, I, I failed that one moment. Can't be me, I actually was thinking really bad thoughts about that person. I'm never gonna tell them about the gospel because, oh God, you, now you know that I was just gossiping about that person, so why would you use me? Confidence in God's covenant-keeping nature empowers us, enables us to come as children to his feet and say, and look, look, look what he says. He goes, he goes, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day for the people of Israel, your servants. Listen to this, confessing the sins of the people. So the people have sinned and it's part of the reason why things are broken the way they are. And we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. We're sinners. I know people, when they, when, when, when they see this or when they admit this, usually what follows right after is, hey, God's not gonna use me. Because I think when we if we do lean into our sin without a firm understanding of our personhood and our identity in Christ and in his covenant-keeping love for us, we'll see our sin and we'll disqualify ourselves. Nehemiah knows it and he sees it, but he's got a confidence in this God and he knows that he can bring those things to God. And then when he does, he can, he can ask God, he can call out to God, he can say, God, be merciful, show grace. Look what he says. He says, we've sinned and I've sinned, 
But remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if we are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me or repent and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them. Nehemiah goes, I know we've sinned. And I know there's massive sin that's wrecked this situation. You're a covenant-keeping God. Your love is steadfast. So I'm gonna come forward knowing what I've heard you say to Moses, which is if we repent, if we own our sin and we come to you, you're not gonna look at our sin and go, get out of my presence, but you're gonna say, yes, return. And then we're not gonna just have to come back to you, but, but you're gonna gather us. You're gonna go out there and, and pull us closer. Nehemiah's confidence in God empowers him to own his own sin and to call out for God's grace. I think these kinds of things are the things that fuel persistent prayer. Look how this develops. He says, we've sinned, but you're gonna gather us and you're gonna bring us to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And then I want you to look what Nehemiah believes about his people, his family, because I think this is, a, this is the place that he prays from. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah plays from a place rooted as a redeemed, rooted as part of the family of God. Knowing that what God is gonna call him to do and what God wants for his people has already been bought by God. God has already declared it. God has already done it. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to achieve it. They pray from a place of identity. And he operates, his purpose that he comes out of this is gonna come from a place of identity. He's one of your servants. I'm some of your people. You have redeemed us by your great power and your strong hand. I think lots of times uh, we pray from a, you know, I don't know if you've read this. I used to read this passage when I was a kid, but it's the passage where Jesus says, if you go to your father uh, and you ask him for a piece of bread, is he gonna hand you a rock? And I used to laugh when I read that. And as I became an adult, I would go, yeah, I pray that way all the time. <laughs> I go to my father all the time, my heavenly father. And I pray sometimes as if when I pray, God's got a rock to hand me. I don't pray like a son or a daughter as a redeemed person in God's presence. I don't pray with the confidence that comes from knowing I belong to him and he is bringing the kingdom to earth through me and through his other sons and daughters. And Nehemiah prays this way from his position. Grace can come back up and I'm almost done here. There's one last thing he does here is he prays as he begins to step out in faith into the thing that God's called him to do. Look at what he says in verse 11. 
Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to hear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's the man? Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah basically has this anguish, this grief, begins to shift his confidence and say, God, you're a great and awesome God. You're a covenant-keeping God. Your, your love is steadfast. He owns his own sin. He, he declares to God who he is and who his people are as the people of God have been redeemed by God. But he prays that he would move into motion. God, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna move into motion. If the burden God has put on your heart does not move you to action, you know what usually happens? You don't pray. You don't continue to pray. Continual prayer is usually linked to the people of God stepping into the terrifying things he's asking us to do. You get a burden for unreached people groups, You feel brokenhearted that there are people on an island somewhere who don't know Jesus and could spend eternity from Christ. Pray once or twice about it. Felt a deep, deep brokenness in your heart. The next week, no, no steps, no action, no investment of your heart. Usually you stop praying. You look around and you, you see the homelessness in the Bay Area, it's gone up drastically and most of them are uh, minority groups that struggle economically. And at first they break your heart, you really care, really matters, really bothers you that they're suffering the way they are. And then the next week, you, you don't invest your time, your energy, the anguish and the grief doesn't push you into action, you usually stop praying. You got a friend who doesn't know Jesus, a friend you deeply love, a friend who's invested in you and a friend you care about, a friend you love so deeply, it, would, it wrecks you to think that they would spend eternity from Christ. Maybe even a family member and you pray for them, you love them you don't pursue them, you don't step out, you don't invest yourself in their life, you don't call them up, you don't take steps in their direction, you don't wait on your life to serve them, usually you stop praying. Prayer that marks a movement usually persists because there is movement. because the things that God has broken inside of you has driven you to grab onto a God bigger than yourself to do things you cannot do, has made you aware of your own frailty and your own brokenness, but driven you to realize that you stand as a redeemed, as someone who's a servant of God. And then I imagine if Nehemiah was today, he'd be serving some governor or major official and he'd be in his car and 
he has a vision, he has an anguish, and he gets in his car and he's gonna go. He's not supposed to say anything to the king, but he's driving on his way to the king and he's just, God, you gotta, you gotta put your words in my mouth. You gotta put your words in my mouth when I speak to the king. You, you, you gotta drive, God I, God, I need you to give me wisdom. And, and when I speak to the king, would you give me just the right moment at the right time to be around the king so that you would just give me favor? Would you give me grace in that moment to step into the thing you want me to do? See, here's the beautiful thing. God will create the space and the right moment when we walk out in obedience. We'll find out later, Nehemiah got around the king and he didn't have to say a word. He was ready to say a word. He said, God, you know, give me mercy in the sight of this man. Uh, Nehemiah is planning, I think, to say something to the king, but he gets around the king and what we'll find is we gets around the king. God has so moved the heart of the king that he looks at Nehemiah and he goes, well, what's up, buddy? And he goes, the city of Jerusalem is broken down. So God will work in ways we cannot imagine when we lean into God's heart for the things that are broken. Someone you need to talk to, someone you need to share with, I promise you as you move in their direction, you will pray like you have never prayed. I've seen whole ministries launched out of this. Ministries for the homeless, ministries for juvenile youth, Ministries for teen moms. I've seen whole movements sparked out of anguish and grief, but a high confidence in God. And then steps driven by persistent prayer to do what God was calling a person to do. And I was in Arkansas, I, uh, I was driving around Arkansas. I had just gotten off the plane. I had flown in from China. I was been hired to be a youth pastor. And I was uh, driving around where the church was in 2011, where I was gonna be the youth pastor. And I saw these youth playing basketball all over the area and during school. And I, I wondered what that was about. And uh, I remember just a growing pain in my heart as I realized that most, a lot of their dads were in prison and um, I'd see them fight on the side of the street. I started watching the news and I started hearing riots going on in these schools that surrounded our church. And, and uh, but I'm, I'm a white kid from Missouri. Um, I, I'm, I'm not an inner city kid. I, I didn't grow up in a big city. I'm kind of a small town kid, but my heart started really to feel the pain of what I was seeing in that area, and, and I didn't know what to do about it, And uh, but I was praying about it a lot, and I bumped into a guy who was a football coach at one of those failing schools. I don't know how I bumped into him. It was the plan of God, and somehow he found out I was a youth pastor, and he told me that uh, he asked me if I'd come speak to the football team, and I said I would, and um, be honest with you, I was terrified that the school that I went to had been in the news for a massive lockdown and a riot. And, and uh, I, I didn't know anything about that. So I, I wasn't really, I was pretty terrified, but I knew God wanted me to go there. So 
I went on the campus, went to the locker room, walked into the locker room with lots of angry, angry young men. Many of whom didn't know their father and many of whom who were in and out of juvie and angry, violent young men. And, and, uh, and I got up and, and I told them what I knew of violent men in the Bible and about how those violent men had found the grace of Jesus. And when I walked out of that locker room, I thought, I'll never make an impact here. I, I, I'll never be able to change anything here. Um, then I got called by that football coach saying, hey, I, I'd love to see those kids come to your church. And I said, well, I, I can't do anything about that. I mean, I can't, you know, I don't have anything. And he goes, well, you'd need a bus. And I was like, oh. I was like, I don't have a bus. He goes, well, you would need a bus. So I went, I prayed about it, and then I walked into our church and a gray-haired guy named Dick Harris, been one of the elders of the church, and I said, Dick, I think I could reach some of these kids if I had a bus. And he said, I'll buy you a bus. And he bought me a bus. And for the next four years, I got to bus in 70, 65, 70 kids a week to hear about Jesus. And it was hard and it was violent at times and there were fights that went down, but I saw kids meet Jesus. And I'll tell you this, I prayed all the time. I prayed on the bus ride to pick them up because I wasn't sure I was gonna get stabbed. I prayed when we were in the room because I wasn't sure that things weren't gonna happen there. I prayed when I went to visit homes because my heart was broken and God had called me to step into it. I had nothing to offer except confidence in God. And that's all any of us have to offer. All we have is confidence in a covenant-keeping God. And that fuels us to pray. So we're gonna pray. We're gonna worship and we're gonna pray. And um, as we do that, I, I think maybe there are some things that are broken for you right now. And what I'd like to do is as we move into worship, I would like you to move to the front or stay where you are, but I would like you as you worship to lean into the grief God is revealing to you right now. And I want you to pray that God would open your eyes to who he is and what he has called you to do for that person that comes to your mind or for that thing or that situation. Let's respond in worship, but let's grab onto the reins and say, God, what are you calling us to do and to be about? Let's respond.